Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back to another episode of Murders, Minors, Killer Kids. This episode is brought to you by the State of Logic podcast. This is Murders, Minors, Killer Kids, bringing you the frightening and truly insane tales of children with the thirst to kill. Kindergarten through 12th grade murderers. True stories thoroughly researched. Join us weekly for new tales of parents' worst nightmares on Murderous Minors, Killer Kids. Episode number 13. Winner written all over him. Do you remember the first time you walked somewhere alone? Maybe it was to school, maybe to a friend's house to play, but regardless of the destination, it's usually kind of a big deal. Not really for the kid, but mostly for the parents. Most parents are reluctant to allow their children to venture away unsupervised, even for the smallest amounts of time. We all know that irreversible damage can take place within a second. A second spent looking away, or even looking at our phones, attention momentarily diverted. On August 2, 1993, young mom Dory Roby allowed her older son, four-year-old Derek, DJ Roby, to walk the less than two blocks that separated the Roby family home from the park, located in the tiny village of Savona in upstate New York. It was an overcast morning with rain looming in the clouds, but kids still streamed down their street. As Derek's baby brother was being tended to by Dory, the spunky four-year-old convinced her that he would have no problem scooting himself off to the summer recreation program at the park. A fun morning of checkers and kickball lay ahead, a mere 400 yards from his house, at the dead end of their road. Kids walked past the Roby home toward the park all morning, and Derek was eager to join in, as he had been doing three days a week all summer long. Full of energy, he had an attitude that just kept him on a forward trajectory in life, concentrating hard on having fun and cramming the most activities and adventure into a day that he could. Playing t-ball and slamming a home run for his mom, digging up worms, and brushing up on martial arts skills kept him busy. Looking after his baby brother with affection and care kept him happy, as you can clearly see in the numerous video clips available online and linked in the notes. That late summer day in 1993 had begun normally for the Robies and just as normally for the Smith family who lived on the other side of the small farming town. Their son was 13-year-old Eric Smith, a middle child with two sisters who lived with his mom Tammy and stepfather Ted Smith. He had just finished up the sixth grade at Campbell Savona Elementary School and both he and four-year-old Derek were attending the recreation program at the park. Ted Smith had begun dating his mother when she was pregnant with Eric and adopted him shortly after birth. As a toddler, he threw tantrums that included him banging his head on the ground. He was a quirky kid, labeled bright but an underachiever. 
Like other kids around Savona, he watched a lot of TV and had a love for Beavis and Butthead from the MTV cartoon popular in the 90s. Although he repeated the fifth grade, Eric liked to read and enjoyed graphic young adult novels with kids in peril, along with Stephen King books that included violence against animals. It was thought that such interests may have contributed to an event which occurred when he was nine years old. Eric was caught having killed the neighbor's cat by sliding a clamp over its neck and suffocating it. Ted Smith disciplined his son with physical violence. Initially, the neighbor was angry. However, he softened when, after a few days, Eric apologized and completed some work around the elderly man's home. But the neighbor would later say that the ferocity with which six-foot Ted Smith grabbed his stepson by the arm and kicked him in his backside made him gasp in fear that he'd broken the small child's back. A friend of Eric's mother also reported having witnessed a similarly frightening episode of discipline. Eric said he often felt bullied by other kids and by members of his own family and had reportedly been in trouble before for putting fruit in the tailpipes of his perceived adult offenders. He did seem to get along better with grown-ups who weren't related to him and even did odd jobs for folks around his neighborhood. Eric had already arrived at the summer program at the park and had been sent home for being disobedient before little Derek set out on his adventure at 9.15 a.m. The director of the program later stated that Eric continued to ride his bike in an unauthorized area despite being asked more than once to stop. According to Eric's own account, about three houses away from the park, he intercepted Derek, letting him know that there was a shortcut to the day camp and they could arrive first if they took the narrow path through an adjacent lot. Derek was a smart little boy. He was set to start school later that month and to turn five two months later. He told Eric that he wasn't allowed to go with strangers, but was told, you'll be okay, I'm right here. Within ten minutes... Four-year-old Derek Roby was dead. Once concealed by a nearby patch of sparse trees, Eric strangled Derek to unconsciousness by putting him in a chokehold. Once he had him on the ground, Eric removed both a paper towel and the plastic from around the sandwich found in Derek's lunchbox and shoved them down into Derek's little throat. He then located and unearthed some rocks, one about 25 pounds. He smashed the large rock onto Derek's head multiple times, then pummeled the four-year-old's chest and body with smaller ones. He opened Derek's lunchbox again, squashed the banana inside, and poured his container of red Kool-Aid all over his destroyed little body. The final brutal act of aggression bestowed upon Derek was sodomy with a four-inch stick. Eric explained to investigators later his true intent had no sexual overtones. What he really wanted was to stop Derek's heart. He feared the disciplinary backlash which would lay ahead if Derek were able to identify his attacker. So he wanted to make sure that he was dead. Around 11.15 a.m., Dory Roby turns up at the park to collect her son earlier than usual due to rain moving in and shutting down all the fun. Dory was met with surprise, which quickly turned to alarm, as the staff realized that Derek hadn't been there at all that day. By early evening, police recovered Derek's body laying underneath a tree. He was face up on a bed of moss like he was sleeping. 
He was laid to rest with a bat and a baseball beside him wearing his little t-ball uniform. Four days later, Tammy Smith and other family members brought Eric to the police station, letting investigators know he may be able to help. He too attended the summer program and was in the area that day. Police remember that he was eager to be questioned, even happy to be there, as they asked what he knew about the events leading up to a battered toddler's body being found in the woods. As it turned out, Eric's grandfather, a retired deputy, encouraged his mother to bring him to the police. He had questioned the boy himself and felt as though he were withholding information. Eric at first said that he didn't see Derek, but then says he did see him from across the overgrown lot on the other side of the street from where Derek was walking. He elaborated that he had on a white tank top and that he had a neat lunchbox. They started to press him a bit more fervently regarding the precise location where he was when he saw Derek. Eric began to shake and get upset. He trembled with fists clenched, then said, You think I killed him, don't you? He then asked to take a break. His stepfather brought him a glass of red Kool-Aid and the questioning commenced. They wanted to see if the drink would trigger any reaction, considering that Derek's container was opened and poured on his wounds. Eric quickly became upset again, throwing the glass onto the floor. It was clear to detectives that this child had seen something extremely traumatizing. However, one glance exchanged between them in the room and they also knew that Eric had to be much closer to Derek than he was admitting. They didn't let on and instead arranged to meet Eric the next day so he could reenact and describe his movements and what he saw that morning. He calmly rode around on his bicycle, clearly enjoying the attention and having all eyes on him, according to investigators. A family friend and mother of Eric's playmate let police know that Eric had changed his clothes on the day of the murder. She said she knew this because he had stayed over at her house the night before the murder. He had been spending the night a lot for months. She dropped him at home in the morning to get his bike and saw him head out. But when she saw him at her house later in different clothes, he said he had been caught up in the rain. She mentioned this to authorities when asked if there was anything about Eric's behavior around that time that they should know about. When investigators asked him to wear the same clothes he had worn to camp that day to a reenactment that they planned for the next morning, he turned up in the second outfit from that day, not the one he left to day camp in. When his mom was questioned and the first set of clothing was located, they were covered in blood. Trying to dig further into Eric's involvement, his friend's mother prepared him a banana split when he spent the night following the reenactment. His reaction was swift and angry. He screamed that he hated fucking bananas. Red Kool-Aid on the floor of the interrogation room, animated disgust at the thought of eating a banana, and the discovery of the bloody clothes really began to increase suspicions, but still provided no real proof. A couple of days after the bicycle reenactment, Eric's family sat him down and demanded he explain exactly what he knew. It didn't take long before he broke down and confessed the length of his involvement. His grandfather, Red Wilson, recalled being present during that confession, describing his heartbreak at hearing his grandson say, I'm sorry, Mom. I'm sorry, Mom. I killed Derek. Six days following the murder on August 8, 1993, Eric was charged with second-degree murder. He was transferred to Monroe County Children's Center and pled not guilty the following month. He underwent 
rigorous examination and medical testing at the beginning of December. As recommended by the defense-hired expert psychiatrist Stephen P. Herman, Eric underwent blood testing, neurological examination, as well as testing of his hormone levels. The following year, in August 1994, Eric's trial began for the murder of Derek Roby. Although Eric had said during police interviews that he didn't know Derek, a counselor from the summer program testified that he had seen the pair interact on at least 15 different occasions. He stated that they had even played together, including games like checkers and baseball. The prosecution contended that this would help to explain why Derek would alter his route going into the trees with Eric. Public defender Kevin Bradley never tried to challenge Eric's confession or his guilt. He instead took the route of an insanity defense. He presented the assertion that Eric suffered from some type of mental or emotional impairment at the time of the murders. He referred to Eric's state of mind as extremely emotionally disturbed, causing his eruption of rage that came on unprovoked. Psychological treatment, not prison, is what he contended would be best for Eric. The defense's expert witness, Stephen Herman, attempted to persuade the jury that Eric experienced increasingly low self-esteem as he grew up. He described how Tammy Smith had used an epilepsy medication that may have led to Eric's low IQ, behavioral problems, and physical differences like his small stature and low-set ears. He presented intermittent explosive disorder as a diagnosis, as well as his reason for acting so violently yet unprovoked. Intermittent explosive disorder has three major identifying characteristics as explained in court, bedwetting, fire setting, and cruelty to animals. You may also notice that two of the three identifying characteristics of a serial killer are here as well. Both Herman and Eric's parents agreed he had all three. Eric's mother and stepfather testified about his anger issues and history of being bullied. Well, for quite a few years, I had a little hot temper myself, so it's hard to say. There's a lot of things I said. Kick their butt up over their shoulders, sick and tired of the crap, sick and tired of you. Let's swat them upside the head. He'd come home often on the bus crying. On him. No matter what he said or did, he'd pick it on throw things at him, wouldn't stop, ears. call him names. I just told him that he has to learn to stick up for himself. Did it work? No. And he was really upset, and he was crunching his fists and shaking. I said, Dad, I need help. He said, yes, I do. I want to hurt something like that. And I said, hold it. When I got angry, when I was your age, I grabbed the bag in our barn, and I just started beating on it until I was too tired to do anything else. I heard our door shut, and I turned around, and he was gone. And as I got to the window, he was coming back in the door, and he was calm. And I looked down, and I noticed his knuckles and his hands were kind of skinned up and bloodied. And I asked him what happened, and he said I hit the tree a couple of times. Seemed to be okay. I don't ever recall him saying he was sorry for killing the boy. Tammy Smith described how she had been taking the anti-seizure medication since the age of five, and that she also had begun taking an antidepressant in 1979, the year before Eric was born. She described how her family felt suspicion that Eric knew more, and she continually questioned him about the details until he just turned to her and made the admission. The family then brought him to authorities to turn himself in. 
Eric's attorney pointed out that although his parents, teachers, and even other members of his family knew that he was bullied and was unable to control his temper, they failed to act appropriately and effectively. His friend's mom stated that she had recommended her own son's counselor to the Smiths. She had spent time with the boy and could see that he had issues that needed professional attention. An essay written earlier that school year depicting fictional but graphic inappropriate violence was scrutinized with no helpful outcome ascertained. Around the time that he killed the neighbor's cat, Eric began smoking cigarettes at the age of nine. His legal team cited nicotine addiction as a factor in addition to the diagnoses of depression and intermittent explosive disorder. However, even Eric's own wrestling coach from school shot down this theory. He testified that while he had seen him cry after losing, he never saw any anger or rage shine through. In interviews completed as they prepared for trial, the psychiatrist testified that Eric told him about his so-called mad switch and that he got angry and wanted to get it out. Eric was quoted as saying that he wanted to hurt Derek and take his anger out on him. He mentions nothing of Eric saying that he wanted to kill Derek, going along with the defense's contention that the killing was an uncontrollable act brought on by his mental illness. His main motivation was just to hurt. On cross-examination, D.A. Tunney was interested to find out if certain aspects of the defendant's personality were being stitched together to provide an abstract diagnosis, but Stephen Herman denied this assumption. He testified that, coming from a home rife with physical abuse and even sexual abuse between the stepfather and older sister, contributed to his mental instability and lack of impulse control. He called the household extreme and terrifying. For weeks, the jury of serious men and women watched as Eric Smith sat emotionless as the details of his entire childhood and life thus far were examined, detail by excruciating detail. To add insult to injury during the trial, Eric was often dressed in bright colors or shirts with cartoon characters emblazoned on them, clothes like Derek would have worn, and cornerstone to what was perceived as an effort to portray Eric as just an innocent kid himself. For example, on the morning of Derek's murder, he was wearing a heavy metal t-shirt. On August 16, 1994, 14-year-old Eric Smith was found guilty of second-degree murder. The jury received 71 minutes of direction from the judge before heading out to begin deliberations. The complexity of New York law confounded them, forcing them to return three times to ask further questions of the judge. After eight hours of deliberating, the verdict was read aloud in court at 9.44 p.m. Judge Donald G. Purple allowed the public defender 30 days in which to file any intended motions. Kevin Bradley said he planned to file a motion to dismiss, and if denied, he planned to appeal the verdict. Once these motions were concluded, sentencing was to commence if appropriate. Kevin Bradley filed the motion for a new trial based on the following criteria. He claimed the prosecution didn't present enough evidence to convict for second-degree murder. They contend that they did. He also claimed that the judge gave different jury instructions rather than instruct them in the manner he requested. He wanted Judge Purple to let the jury know that they could have reasonable doubt without having to state what that doubt was regarding. The judge refused. Bradley had also wanted Judge Purple to tell the jury that Eric only meant to hurt Derek, not kill him, However, he did not make that clear to the jury. Eric's inability to distinguish between harming and killing lent itself to the insanity defense. 
He also took offense to D.A. Tunney's actions once Eric began to confess. Bradley ascertained that Tunney led Eric and his family to believe that Eric would be eligible for psychiatric treatment should he confess. He claims that the D.A. never told them that Eric could face murder charges. Tunney says that he was under no legal obligation to tell them that. He says that he didn't want Eric to stop making a statement. Bradley went on to state that the prosecution called unnecessary witnesses producing misleading testimony on regards to whether Derek and Eric knew each other. Eric repeatedly had said that they didn't, and the DA brought forth testimony proving this to be false. Tunney says that false testimony that pertains to whether someone knows their victim is generally considered to be an admission. Bradley then claimed prejudicial testimony, saying that Tunney both opened and closed the prosecution's case with appeals to the jury's sympathy. He accused the DA of pandering. Lastly, Bradley said the DA did not do enough to explain away Eric's actions when he killed Derek and instead obscured pertinent facts during his closing arguments. Even after highlighting these seven points of contention, Judge Purple denied the request for a new trial in late September, and on November 7, 1994, Eric Smith received the maximum sentence of nine years to life in prison, meaning that after nine years of incarceration, he would become eligible to face the parole board and plead his case to be released. He then went to Brookwood Secure Juvenile Center near Albany. In 1997, he made another attempt at a new trial, claiming that his lawyer, Kevin Bradley, was incompetent. The state appeals court rejected this claim. Don't forget to check out our sponsor, the State of Logic podcast, to hear real talk about real topics. The State of Logic podcast is like no other. We don't have the same focus as so many other podcasts where we're just going to talk about business or politics or whatever. We talk about everything with everyone, intellectuals, comedians, and celebrities alike. Sometimes it's a 20-minute interview. Sometimes it's a three-hour interview. But at the end of the day, it's a great conversation that we often laugh about and learn something from at the same time. Come check us out at the State of Logic podcast. In late January 2001, Eric Smith was sent to Clinton Correctional Facility upon turning 21 years of age and exiting the juvenile system. Shortly after his arrival, his stepfather Ted Smith said in an interview that Eric had been beaten mercilessly by his fellow inmates, resulting in his transfer to a cell block for prisoners with disabilities. Ted Smith also said that he couldn't remember Eric having apologized to his family, or the Robies for that matter, and that he had just recently begun to show emotion regarding his situation. On June 10, 2002, after having been in adult prison for only 17 months, Eric Smith had his first parole hearing at the age of 22. Many in the community did not welcome the thought of Eric being released after only nine years. D.A. Tunney was not confident that he had no longer posed a threat to society's safety. The reports Tunney received throughout Eric's stay in the youth facility reiterated to him that he was still a danger to those around him and that he has failed to gain insight into his own actions. Eric's first bid for parole was rejected, as the board cited an obvious lack of remorse from the young killer. This was generally the expected outcome, and his mother Tammy Smith made the following statement. 
I just want everyone who has gone through this terrible tragedy, especially the Roby family, to know that our entire family feels so terrible that this happened at all. Our family will never be able to express or put into words the loss or ongoing pain, but we want you to know that we all hope for you and your family peace and serenity someday. The parole board referred to Derek's murder as horrendous and noted that this release would depreciate its seriousness. Savona residents were relieved and the Robies began the 18-month or so period before having to get ready for the next hearing in 2004. Prior to his second parole hearing, Eric appeared in a television program and made the following statements. I know my actions have caused a terrible loss in the Roby family, and for that I'm truly sorry. I've tried to think about as much as possible what Derek will never experience. His 16th birthday, Christmas, anytime, owning his own house, graduating, going to college, getting married, his first child. If I could go back in time, I would switch places with Derek and endure all the pain of causing. If it meant that he would go on living, I'd switch places. After quite a few years of verbal abuse and having been told that I'm nothing, I shut down my feelings so I wouldn't feel the emotional pain which made me feel vulnerable and weak. But the damage was done. I began to believe that I was nothing and a nobody. And my outlook on life was dark. I felt that when I went to school, I was going to hell because that's what it was for me, it was hell. However minor or major the abuse is, it all adds up till it gets to the point where the individual cannot take anymore. After a while, they may cope in a horrific way, take their emotional anger and rage out on someone who had done nothing to bring on such violence, like Derek. Not because they're evil or satanic little kids. It's because they want the abuse to stop and it's the only way they know how to. Although each case is different, there is always the underlying fact that those kids who do these unthinkable crimes endure years of abuse, whether at school, at home, or both. I had issues at home, but I'm not going to talk about that. You may think I'm a threat to society, and I can understand why you would feel that way. The fact is, is that I'm not. I'd be an asset to society. On June 10, 2004, the parole board made public its rejection of Eric Smith's second parole bid. During his interview, Eric told the board that it was a fear of getting caught, not remorse for his victim, that led him to confess. He also said that, although he sodomized his victim with a stick, it was to ensure his death, not to provide sexual gratification. He said he would likely return to Savona if released. The board also stated that Eric had freely admitted that, had he not been apprehended for killing Derek, he was capable of killing someone else. They determined that he lacked both understanding as well as insight into the type of person he himself was at age 13 and continued to be at 24. They felt that he continued to pose an imminent threat and was a clear and present danger to society. The risk to the safety and well-being of others was found to be unreasonable and unacceptable should he be set free. The parole board felt that he was still capable of murder.
The June 2006 parole hearing brought the third denial, with the panel revealing that Eric had received punishment for unspecified transgressions since his last hearing two years earlier. They stated that, The panel has determined that if released at this time, there is a reasonable probability that you would not live and remain at liberty without violating the law, and your release would be incompatible with the welfare of society. This third parole hearing marked the first time that Derek's younger brother Dalton, then 14 years old, wrote a letter to the board to oppose Eric's release. In June 2008, the fourth bid was rejected, with the parole board saying that, This panel remains concerned with the mindset which, for no legitimate reason, would cause you to brutally and savagely beat and sodomize an innocent four-year-old child. This senseless disregard for the sanctity of human life and the norms of our society continues to raise questions about your ability to lead a law-abiding life. The board rejected his fifth attempt in April of 2010, saying that his discretionary release at this time would so depreciate the seriousness of your crime as to undermine the respect for the law. Discretionary release at this time is not consistent with the public safety. Eric Smith was 30 years old by then and housed at Clinton Correctional Facility. In the parole hearing transcript, he stated that bullies and self-hatred fueled his violent behavior. He made the following statements in a 2010 interview for a television program about kids who have committed murder. I picked him because he was defenseless. I didn't know his name. During the time that I was... Killing Derek, I was thinking of the individual that tormented me. I saw him in my mind. I saw the individuals that laughed at me. I was getting back at those individuals. I didn't get any sexual gratification from it. It was pretty much a means to an end. I didn't know whether he was dead or not. And I was terrified that if he wasn't, he was going to get up and tell someone. The only thing I could think of was stopping his heart. I tried to poke him in the chest but it wouldn't pierce his skin. And the only thing that I could think of to get to his heart was sodomizing with a stick. I realized, you know, as I'm looking at Derek, I'm like, what'd you do? My mom had said that being that I was over on that side of town, she felt that I might have saw something. I switched up my story, and they saw that. They pretty much knew that it was me. They looked at me and was like, why'd you do it? Why are you lying about it? In my head, I'm thinking, you know, just tell him it was you. Get it over with. I pretty much said, Mom, I killed Derek. She just burst out crying, and I, I immediately did the same. If I could switch places with Derek, I'd do it without a second thought. What messes me up most of all is that he was by himself. I'm the one that caused Derek to die alone. He never lived a full life because of me. When I killed Derek, I didn't have morals because I didn't know what they were. What's different between me now and when I was 13? I value life. His 2012 parole hearing did not bode any better than his prior five attempts. They acknowledged that Eric hadn't been disciplined for any violent offenses while locked up and that he was making progress toward institutional goals and through programs. In his statements at his sixth parole board hearing, he said that if he was released, he would likely try to go to a halfway house or a shelter away from Savona, where he committed his crime. 
He said that he realized that if he had been released earlier, he would not have been ready because he wasn't emotionally connected yet. So, having been denied parole five previous times, I'm not opposed to that because I realized that I wasn't ready. He didn't have any new insight into his motivation to murder Derek, just stating his desire to hurt someone else because he was an abused and bullied child. He then said he feels remorse and now comprehends the value of human life. But they cited community opposition in their rejection this time, and their statement was very similar to the one they made the previous time. They continued to find his release at odds with the good of society. In 2014, Eric went up for parole for the seventh time and had a bit more to say this time. Quote, I took my anger and frustration and rage out on him. I took it out on Derek and he did not deserve that. Who I was at age 13 does not exist. That child who committed that crime, he's gone. He's never coming back. He listed his stepfather, his older sister, and local high school students as his main tormentors and called his acts horrendous, uncalled for, and wrong. The eighth rejection in 2016 was standard. However, earlier this month, he was denied parole for the ninth time. And new tonight, a man convicted in a notorious slaying of a four-year-old child from 25 years ago in the southern tier will remain in prison. The New York State Parole Board once again last week turning down parole for Eric M. Smith. Smith, who is now 38 years old, was 13 years old back in August 1993 when police determined that he lured four-year-old Derek Roby into a wooded area near his home in Savona, Steuben County, and then strangled and bludgeoned the child. According to the Rochester Democrat and Chronicle, Smith claimed he repressed anger because of bullying, but a parole board member said he released it on little Derek. Smith now being held at the Collins Correctional Facility on a life sentence. He'll be eligible for parole again in January of 2020. For the very first time, it was not by unanimous decision. One commissioner on the parole board decided that Eric, now 38 years old, is a mature adult who takes responsibility for his actions. He feels that further institutionalization serves little purpose, considering that Eric has now been locked up for almost 25 years. Regardless, the board collectively ruled that his release would continue to undermine the law. They continue to harbor grave concern over the fact that he took his anger out on Derek unprovoked. They recognize his accomplishments while behind bars such as positive programming, volunteering with the chaplain, and apologizing repeatedly, but feel none of it outweighs the severity and brutality of the crime he committed in 1993 at the age of 13. The village of Savona, New York, was wholly traumatized by this event, calling it two murders realistically. The murder of Derek, of course, at the forefront, but the murder of Eric's normal life and the slaughter of their town's innocence also had their effects. The families of Derek's father and Eric's mother were long-standing residents of the area. Everyone had had contact with someone from either or both families at some point. This really complicated the collective feelings of the tiny community of less than 1,000 and compounded their grief. They've never let go of this case. The town is small, so it isn't hard to find yourself passing several of the locations key to the case as you maneuver about your day. They've never forgotten Derek or how he had mastered the two-wheeler and learned to cast his own fishing line at the young age of four. 
or how he had read to his baby brother bedtime stories every night, but didn't live to start kindergarten. By the conclusion of the trial, most in the area were done speaking to the media. Many were tired of having every nuance of their small-town existence henpecked to find a reason or a place for blame. By the time of his trial in late summer of 1994, O.J. and Eric were neck and neck in terms of news coverage time around Savona. The neighbor behind whose home Derek was murdered was particularly introspective of the circumstances. On that particular day, he and his wife were inside when normally they would have been enjoying their morning out in the backyard. They think about it every day, every time they go out back, actually. What if they'd been there? Throughout the early 2000s, the Robies began working closely with former Assemblywoman Senator Catherine Young to increase the amount of time that must pass before parole can be sought. First came Penny's Law, which was passed in 2003 and was named after Penny Brown, a mother and beloved midwife who was murdered by a 15-year-old boy while out jogging. We will be covering her case and examining the actions of her killer, Edward Kint, in a future episode. Penny's law enabled judges to impose harsher sentences when a juvenile is tried as an adult. Eric faced a minimum of five and a maximum of nine years to life, meaning he had to serve nine years before applying to the parole board. Penny's law made the minimum 15 and the maximum 25 years much more appropriate for such convictions. The Robies currently support and lobby for passage of Lorraine's Law, currently an assembly committee in the state of New York. Lorraine Miranda was tragically murdered by her fiancé, and her family, like the Robies, endured parole hearings every two years. Chris Patterson, 49, is currently serving 15 years to life and was most recently rejected by the parole board last year. This year will mark 30 years since her murder. This bill will increase the amount of time between parole eligibility hearings from every two years to every five years. Although passage won't affect the Robies or Eric Smith, it will give other victims' families drastically more time between preparation of parole hearings and having to relive those tragic events. Eric Smith will be up for parole for the tenth time in January 2020, the year he turns 40. Derek D.J. Roby would be 30 years old this October. CrimeCon 2018 is forthcoming this weekend in Nashville. Follow us at KillerKidsPod wherever you get your social media for pictures and updates from the convention. With the recent apprehension of the Golden State Killer still fresh on our minds, I think the weekend just got a bit more intriguing. Thanks to the State of Logic podcast for your continued faith and sponsorship. And as always, this episode was produced by Resonate Recordings. Visit them today at ResonateRecordings.com and get an introductory podcast episode produced for free. This is War Baby. Thanks for listening and check back soon for another true tale of the terror kids can cause on Murderous Minors Killer Kids. Don't be scared.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.